Welcome to the Larry Arn Show on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. I am Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and today my conversation is with the very great Victor Davis Hansen. Coming up next. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. I'm a teacher by trade, and uh, I love to introduce young people to people they should emulate. This is a man that I try to emulate. I don't think it'll be possible for me to do a better interview than the one we're going to do right now. Uh, Victor Hansen is a great man. He's a farmer. He's a scholar. He's one of the top 10 most cited classical scholars in the world today. He's uh, an expert on the classical world and all its parts about war, including modern war, about contemporary politics. And the question is, how does a fellow get to be like that? And you know, it, it, you, you'll learn today that uh, one of the ways that you get to be like that is you have to have really remarkable abilities. We don't all have that, but we can all use the abilities that we got. And so here's a man who has done that, and I'm going to try to get him to explain to you how he did it. I want to start out with farming. You grew up on a farm. What's the importance of farming? Well, I think it's the the balance between physical and mental. And so that if you're farming, it's not just rote labor, but you're thinking, how how much money am I losing today? How much money are I'm coming in today? What's the value of my labor as far as the year-end bottom line? Or how can I improve the pruners and the vineyard with me? Should this person be working over there? So you're thinking all the time, but then you're working all the time, physical. And if you if you're too physical, you become brutish, and if you're too intellectual, you become a feat. So it's a perfect balance. It was, and it's practical, very, and it, it makes you very self-reliant because uh, there's nobody else but you. You you keep saying, "Am I going to get a paycheck this week?" It depends on the weather. It depends on labor. It depends on things that you can't calibrate. You don't know why certain plums ripen at certain times you, you you think you know but then it surprises you so there's always the unpredictable that kind of creates a humility that you can't control things that you're kind of a tragedy there's a tragedy there that you cannot control but you have to prepare for it because you never know when you're going to lose a crop or something untoward will happen uh, in my family one generation up everybody was a farmer everybody was. and by the time they've all died or retired and I think whatever, there are 14 children in the two families above me. One was a farmer. Yeah. And that's what's happened. What, did that change the country? It has. When the, the founders, 1776, 95% of the constituents, the people living in the United States, what is then, was then going to be the United States were farmers. And by the 1920s, it was about 45%. Now it's 1%. I think Jefferson said, when people are all piled up in the cities, it's not going to work anymore. And Tocqueville seemed to think that the reason in 1832 that things worked with, you had all of these autonomous people, and they were not like European peasants. They weren't subservient, or they didn't. They were not serfs, or they were not uh, hard scrabble indentured renters or something, but they were autonomous. I think that's really that was very important. It doesn't mean that it can't be transferred, that 
autonomy. You can have independent truck drivers. You can have small business people. But you need a lot of people who are not dependent on the government or a big corporation. And that type of confidence that accrues from that, they're, they're very good citizens and they're practical and they're common sense. The, the difference with farming was it had a natural component. You can really see it with things like climate change or scientific research, quote unquote, or government policy on nature written or directed or promulgated by people who don't have anything to do with nature other than just venture out on the weekends or something. And uh, if they're not living with nature, they don't really understand it. And especially if they don't make their living predicated on harnessing nature but not harming nature. It's kind of a partnership. But they romanticize nature because nature they're, they're not dependent on nature. Of course, we live better by many measures than we'd live when everybody was a farmer. Are you suggesting there's a cost we have to pay in order to live like that? I don't know. I, I, as I, I turned 70 yesterday, and I had a grandfather who I live in his bedroom, and he lived in the bedroom of his great-grandmother, so there's six generations. He died in this room when he was 86, and his wife, my grandmother, I took care of, she died at 93. They had three daughters. They died at 49 my mother died at 66, and her sister died at 60. And then I had a sister-in-law that died at 49. Another, Her sister died at 54, and I had a daughter that died at 26. And they all grew up in this farm, and then they went out, stressful jobs. And they, my grandparents, stayed there. And they got up, they had a routine, and I don't think they ever went more than 100 miles. They went to New Mexico one time in their life. But they had a, a, a certain cyclical idea. And so you would, they would say things today that seem absurd. There's a south wind blowing. You better be careful. The birds are in the trees. This is the phase of the moon. And they were attuned to, they lived by nature and the cycles. And they had diaries, an almanac they kept for 50 years. And you could look at it the day and they would pretty much tell you what you had to do that day based on what they had done that day 40 years in a row. So I think that must have had something to do with longevity. But they did pay a price in the sense that they were constantly apprehensive about they had to live one more day. They didn't know where the income was coming in, the razor edge as far as the margin of profitability and unprofitability. But there was something about staying in one place. And I think some of the worst times I've had, it's getting into this and you're as present no better than I do, the flying here or the flying there and getting detached from being one in one place and stationary. And I think it's not good for people. So uh, one piece of advice for young people might be uh, spend some time throughout your life doing something real. Yeah, do something real and cultivate family. I, I think that's important. That Don't just say that that's my sister so that we're close or that's my best friend so we're close. It's sort of farmers, they tend to maintain relationships or friendships a long time because everybody knows what they are, are what they do, where they're going to be, and they're not going to move suddenly and you're going to lose them. So that I think that was important. Hmm. Uh, my... Uh to me, a farm, growing up, uh, my father was the first one to go to college in either family. And so we lived in the city, that is to say, Pocahontas, 6,000 people. But uh, I would go to the farm, and to me, the farm was a playground. To all my aunts and uncles and my parents, the farm was work, 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 work. And uh, they missed it, and they didn't both. Yeah, but they had something real, a connection. They'd worked in the fields together as little kids. Yeah, I have an ambiguous relationship because I saw it bankrupt a lot of people in my family. But on the other hand, I live there, and so if I walk out, I'll see a horseshoe in the dirt if I'm digging, or I'll see a remnant of somebody, or I'll see a, a barn that I remember somebody being there when I was five, the exact same place kind of haunts you. You're in a, a house and you can think of every room or every window where somebody from the 19th century, they even talked different, they had different accents and they had different vocabularies and you can remember all of that. And 
you do kind of dumb things. I have eight eight buildings on around my house. There's an old shed. There's a barn, and they should have been all been torn down. They were built 1870 to 1880 with eucalyptus poles. And so I found myself the last few years flying all over the country to speak to get money, then to rebuild these things that there's no purpose for, other than my grandfather would say, "I'd really like to have these buildings in good shape one day." Well, now they're all in good shape, but I don't use them. The, thing, the place looks beautiful, but it's only because I wasn't farming. If I was farming, they wouldn't be there. They would have been bankrupt. So. Great. So the classics. You have spent a lot of time studying the ancient world, and you know the languages. Well, that's hard. I've heard you say it takes 2,000 hours to become competent in ancient Greek. I, I came up with that number because I used to teach a lot of minority kids for 20 years in classics, and I had to make the argument to their parents. So I would say, you know, there's 52 weeks a year, and you're going to have to spend, if you did 10 hours uh, a week, it wouldn't be enough, it'd be 500, but you can, it's going to be 2,000 hours. You can do it in two years, three years, but ultimately you're going to have to spend that amount of tower to learn Latin Greek. I I went to an uh, kind of an ossified classical. Believe it or not, Stanford was the, or with Harvard in those days was the classical philology department. It wasn't ancient history. It wasn't archaeology. It wasn't art history. It wasn't comparatively. It was just pure language, and we had to learn how to re read and write in Greek and Latin, take dictation in Greek and Latin, take courses in Mandarin. It was very narrow. I remember my brother was kind of a smart, uh, smart aleck, very brilliant guy, and I came home. And my father said, what did you learn? And he said, he's like Samuel Johnson's dog. He can um, walk on two legs. It's very interesting, but we don't know the purpose of it. He thought that was what Greek was. He said he can write Greek and Latin. And then my dad said, well, that'll do you good. I want you to go over and wire a uh, raisin dehydrator at 220 and rebuild it. And I said, I'm not sure I can do that. And he said, if you can spend all this time reading Greek, you should learn how to do that. And he didn't give me any instruction. He just said, go do it, and then I can see your education is valuable. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I had to... How did the interest in that dawn in you? It was just an accident. I was from a farm, and I went to University of Santa, California, Santa Cruz. It was kind of a hippie. It just opened. It was supposedly the place everybody wanted to go. My father picked it because all three of us got in. He thought it would be cheaper, and we could all live together in a rental house. And I was in a class, and there was this wonderful professor named John Lynch, and I did pretty well on a Western Civ. And he said, would you like to study Latin and Greek? And I said, no. My mother had grown up on the farm, and she was a lawyer, a judge at that time. And I thought, wow, I want to be a lawyer. And then he said, you're doing pretty well. Why don't you go take Yale, uh, go to Yale summer school and take Greek after your freshman year? And I said, I'm only 18. And he said, well, everybody's in their late 20s. If you survive that intensive Greek program, and it was pretty traumatic for me. I'd never been out of California. So then I started doing pretty well. I came back and I, it was that whole classics group at UC Santa Cruz had come from Yale and they were philologists, believe it or not. So when I graduated, he, uh, he was always telling, now you can go to Greece. So my parents would come home and said, what are you going to do with this? And I said, I don't know. I'm pretty good at it. And they always give me money. So then I applied to graduate school. And she said, well, she was a Stanford chauvinist. My grandfather had mortgages his farm and sent two of his girls to Stanford to get BAs and advanced degrees. And she said, well, we're a Stanford family. I said, I'm not going to go there. And, and then I asked this, my my mentor, and he said, yeah, they, ha they have a really good philology department, and they'll pay your entire way mm -hmm. if you can get in. So I, they had examinations to take, and then I was 25, and I looked at the job market, and there was no jobs for a white male that knew Latin and Greek. <laughs> so I came home to take care of my grandparent, my grandmother for a summer, and the next thing I knew, I stayed five years farming full-time. And then at some point... I didn't have any money. I wasn't doing too well. And there was a campus at Cal State Fresno. I'd never really been there, 30 miles away. And I walked in and asked if I could teach a Latin class. And they said, they'll think about it for three years. First day I got there, I parked on campus. 
And the secretary said I had tracked mud in because I was irrigating and going back and forth. And then the next thing I did, I went out to the parking lot and there were the police were there around my pickup. I said, Mr. Mr. What's your name? And I said, Hanson. He said, what are you doing? You have a shotgun in the window and that's against the law to have a state campus. Is the, is the firearm loaded? And I said, yeah, I shoot things that on the farm. I don't remember when a coyote. And they didn't believe that I was a faculty member. And the very nice guy got to know him really well. He said, I didn't see any of this. Put the gun, tuck it better down, and never bring it on campus again. That was my first day at Clint campus. <laughs> got busted. That was 20 years I stayed there, so it got better. <laughs> Maybe people should know that I've known Victor now for many years, more than 20, I think, but uh, admire him very much. But I read your resume, and I realized that you had had a special interest in Aristophanes. Yes. That What's was, that about? Well, when you were in, in this particular program, you concentrated on authors that you had to master in Greek for your PhD. So my two were, you had to have two Latin, and two, mine were Tacitus and Petronius, and Aristophanes and Thucydides, which means you have to read the whole corpus in Greek and know the manuscript. I liked him because he wrote probably 100 comedies. We have 11 that are extant. And they're bitter. He, he's kind of a, the classicists don't like to be so explicit, but if you look at 19th century scholarship, pretty, they were pretty much in agreement. He's an old curmudgeon, and he's a conservative, and he doesn't like the radicalization of democracy. But he's too clever to be a partisan, so he makes fun of everybody. Kind of like Saturday Night Live, but kind of grotesque and sometimes repulsive. But he attacks everybody, and he has these comedies where he holds up to ridicule the politicians of the age, and they're on different topics. Sometimes they're uh, anti-Socrates, the clouds, sometimes the knights, anti-Alcibiades, etc. I mean, Cleon, I should say. So I liked it a lot, and I, and, uh, I kind of mastered that. I, I think used he's to one, what is it? It's Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes are people who knew Socrates yes. and wrote about him. Yes. So I think there's only three. Maybe there's a fourth. That's... Uh, Remarkable, and of course, it's derisory towards Socrates. Yes, which is interesting. Yeah. Aristophanes did not. He, I think, he would have said what Churchill said of Gandhi: "He was a naked faker." You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> something right. like that. Uh, and uh, I've read something interesting lately. I'll volunteer that uh, in his early time, Socrates was like a pre-Socratic. He was just doing theory. What's what? What are the elements? How do they work? And he changed, he, he writes about the fact that he did, Plato does, that uh, now he's interested in the things of men. And so there's an argument that I've read lately that Aristophanes didn't like that first Socrates. Mm -hmm. He might like the second one better. I but, think that's true. I, he was, there's a mis, the mystical Pythagoras we don't really know as much. We have later biographies about him from the Hellenistic and Roman age, but he seems to have been a... a mathematical mystic that numbers have certain relationships that show divinity and you get glimpses of the pythagorean theorem or something like that and that shows you how the divinity works cosmology and he was very much influenced by that and then he brought philosophy supposedly down from the clouds hmm. aristophanes thought he never did so that attack you're right in the clouds is sort of well he was always a mystic and nobody understands what he's saying even though he was a hoplite that fought at the Battle of Delium. He almost got killed, and he led the rear guard in the defeat, saved Alcibiades' life probably. But he was, a, he was a man of action as well. He was in three battles in the Peloponnesian War. He was one of the few people who would not vote to execute the generals at Argonusi. So he, he was a man of action as well. So Thucydides and Aristophanes are not the same kind of guy. Tell us about Thucydides. I think he's probably the greatest thinker of classical Greece. He was a half Thracian. He was an aristocrat. And he probably wrote the Peloponnesian War somewhere between 420 to 400 BC. He was writing it because he came three days late to Amphipolis, and he was in charge of a naval squadron. And he was unfairly relieved of command, ostracized, probably by Cleon, whom he 
he describes as a very unpleasant character, as did Aristophanes. And he took that ostracism to travel over the Greek world. And ostensibly, he was writing about what he thought would be the greatest war they did. He didn't quite know how long it was going to last. But he did something that we can't really decide about. He created virtual truth or narrative truth. In other words, he has this ambiguous declaration at the beginning, book 122, he says, I wrote down things as they happened, and it took me a lot of trouble to find the truth. And then you think you know that it's completely factual. And he said, and in some cases, I put into the mouth of people things that they should have said given the situation. So you don't know whether Pericles' funeral oration was dictated, probably not, or it represents the worldview in part of Thucydides. That's what makes it so brilliant. So there's two Thucydides. There's a very factual, helpful account of the war from 431, where he ends in mid-sentence in 411. And then it's a philosophy, the Melian dialect, the uh, debate over Mytilene, the Corsairan revolution, the funeral oration, where he's impugning his own ideas or he's putting it in, infusing it into characters that he thinks best reflect in these particular situations what he believes the war was about or human nature was about. Before you think, well, he just made it up, he's very careful that his views that come out of the mouths of characters fit the narrative environment of that particular time. So it's very hard to say Cleon didn't say this or Pericles didn't say this because it, nobody else in the, uh, the narrative around those speeches seems to think that they're awkward. They fit the narrative pretty well. So he was an artist as well as a philosopher and a historian. Hey, do you want to hear more from Victor Davis Hanson? What kind of a question is that? Of course you do. Well, I have good news for you. Check out the Hillsdale College Online Courses podcast, where you can find the Second World Wars course, taught by Victor Davis Hanson. It's one of our most popular courses, a seven-lecture course examining the causes of World War II and diving into the strategies that gave the Allies the upper hand over the Axis. Check out the Hillsdale College Podcast Network and the Hillsdale College Online Courses Podcast at podcast.hillsdale.edu. This podcast is hosted by Hillsdale Online Learning Directors Kyle Mernon and Juan Davalos, and it expands Hillsdale College's mission to a whole new audience. You can listen to free, full online courses on your podcast feed with new episodes every week. The Hillsdale College Online Courses Podcast, it's available right now. You can hear Victor Davis Hanson teach you on the Second World Wars. Listen at podcast.hillsdale.edu. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. You got Aristophanes and you got Thucydides. You got comedy and you got tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the whole deal. The classics generally, something charmed you about them and you're giving instances, but at some point you decided to be that. I'm going to be a scholar of this. And that wasn't just because... I know you pretty well, just because somebody gave you some money to study, because you never get rich doing that. But uh, did you see something in them that could help you live your life better? I do. I've always had a liability of doing something to excess. Sometimes it's really boomerang. But between the ages of 18 and 25, I think I didn't go on dates. I didn't go out to do anything. All I did was read Latin and Greek and study Greek literature and Latin literature. And then I did that for the next 20 teaching it. And in some ways it was an escape to get in. It was sort of like leading. Some people do that with Wind in the Willows or Lord of the Rings. It was Game of Thrones. It was going into a complete different, different world. And that was an escape. But for me, what I liked about it was there was no self-censorship. Today in the modern world, when we say things, we predicate them on how they're going to sound as far as our career. Are they politically correct, incorrect, or am I going to suffer repercussions? Human nature being what it is, that was always true to some extent, but people will just say things empirically in the ancient world, and they don't really care whether it sounds incorrect or correct, but they do care whether it's accurate and empirical and it's logical. 
and that honesty permeates, I think, a lot of uh, when somebody like Pericles says or Thucydides puts into his mouth that we cultivate refinement without effeminacy. What is that? That means that we all understand that people can read books and things without being a feat, but you can't say that today because it conjures up all sorts of incorrect ideas about sexuality, orientation, but that's not what they meant. They meant that a person that was inside all day and it was just a scribe was missing out on the world and you couldn't count on him. He was a feat or effeminate. So that they thought that the Athenian was the perfect model that, that avoided Spartanism. He wasn't just physical like the Spartans, and yet he wasn't just a feat like some other cultures, that he was a balanced person. So that you, you gain all of that knowledge. And when I was in graduate school, I, I'd learned that this was an agrarian society, and everywhere I turned there were metaphors from farming, but there was almost nothing written on farming or war, things at that time, the only thing that had been written on war was in German. It was very esoteric. I had a thesis advisor I don't think was very fond of me, but he at least said, well, you're studying languages and that's great. Do you really think you're going to be a great philologist? And I said, not really. I don't like it. He said, well, you know all about farming and this is a farming society. And here's the names of the books on my one hand that are about farming. You could write about that. And if you know something about military history, you seem interested to combine the two. Uh, and I owe him a great deal. So I wrote a, a dissertation, Warfare and Agriculture in Classical Greece, that it was, it was a, you know, everything in life is an accident. Somebody mailed it to the, mil, the military historian, John Keegan, who was very well known. You know him very oh, well. Yeah. And I was farming on the tractor one day, and I got this handwritten note from, you know, the UK. And I went out. And uh, it said, dear professor, I wasn't a professor or anything. I was, and he said, I have read your dissertation. Should you ever write another book, call me. And, and so that day I went in and started writing the Western way of war about the combat. And, I, and then I had no contact with the classical. My thesis advisor was long gone. Nobody. He was my only tie from the farm. So I sent him the manuscript. And I didn't hear from him for three months. I thought I just kept farming. I thought that's it. And then one day he wrote and said, Elizabeth Sifton, editor in chief of Alfred Knopf, will be contacting you this week, and I will be writing the foreword. And, the, <laughs> that's and great. that became almost a bestseller, and that changed everything. Victor is difficult to characterize uh, because he knows so much about, and and I want to emphasize something. He knows so much. What I mean is. He, he's unique in my experience. I can't think of anybody else like him. He's a top academic scholar cited in the classical scholarship among the most in the world. And then on the other hand, he does a lot of other things too. But uh, there are concentrations in your work. War is one of them. How does that come to be? Part of it was I grew up in this family of, they were Swedish Americans on my father's side and then farmers, both of them were farmers, but they were all veterans from World War II. So I would grow up and my father would be talking about flying 40, on 40 missions over Tokyo on a B-29. And then he would talk about his first cousin whose mother had died in childbirth and they had adopted, Victor. And Awaya was named and he had been killed in the 6th Marine Division on Okinawa on the last day of fighting on Sugarloaf Hill. And then I had an uncle who would be at the Christmas dinner and said, well, I was on the Aleutians. Don't forget the Aleutians. Then my grandmother would pipe up and say, my nephew, Belden, he got dinghy fever in the Philippines. It was a terrible, you people should remember what happened in the Philippines. And then she said, and before you do that, Holt, he got killed at Normandy. And then suddenly my grandfather would be there, my Swedish grandfather, in that thick accent. He goes, well, you know, I was in the Ardennes in World War I, Bella Wood, and uh, I got gassed. He, he was a cripple from a phosphine gas. So that period from when I was 7 to 17, when it was just always World War II, World War II. And I started to read for racism. I think a lot of young kids, I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I notice a lot of Hillsdale kids that I, when I've come here, I've taught military history, and I will see students that are 18 and 19, 
and they will come up to me and say, you mentioned a 20 millimeter gun and a B-29. Now remember, they were only there for about six weeks and they know the specifications of the plane. It's almost obsessive. They know everything more than I do. And I remind me when I was that age, I had that. But I also realized that from those stories, how horrific it was. So when I wrote The Western Way of War, nobody had really written what it was like to fight in the phalanx and how awful it was. So in that book, I talked about people getting terrified as they waited to charge and defecating in their armor or shaking or running away or getting killed or what type of wounds they had. And that was, that was derivative in the ancient world of what John Keegan had done in the face of battle. So that was... I try to always talk about war in the, in the sense that it's the supreme folly in a way. It's necessary sometimes, but it, uh, essentially you're talking about young people killing themselves. And, and I, I wrote four or five books, Ripples of Battle, about literature and art that comes out of war, carnage and cold. So I, 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 I was fascinated, but also the horrors of it in a way. You know, as we speak this morning, my younger son is on his way to Quantico to to go to officer candidate school. Wow. <laughs> Going to be a Marine. He's been in the Army for six years, and he decided that wasn't tough enough, so now he has to go, go and be in the oh, Marine yeah. Corps. No offense to the Army. And what does war teach us about people and things and civilization? Well, it's, it warns us about pacifism, and it warns us about the therapeutic nature of the tendency to be a therapeutic. By that I mean it is so horrific and it makes no sense logically that there's always this movement to think we have transcended human nature and this is barbaric, it's Neanderthal, and we in Britain in 1935 were not going to do this anymore or in France in 1929 we're not going to do this or the United States after World War II, this is insane, or during after the Vietnam War. And then you must realize that not everybody's on the same page. And if you have this idea that you've mastered human nature and there's not going to be anybody in the world unlike you that will think, I'm going to take advantage of this nation or I'm going to do something to this group of people and I'm going to do it by force of arms. And they're going to get away with it or they're going to hurt you or what, because you've decided you've transcended, then you have a moral culpability on your part. And so... As a Churchillian scholar, you know what Churchill said about Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain. Not so much Neville Chamberlain, but the French, were this, they get people killed is what I'm saying yeah. by their morality. And so uh, you, have to, you have to always realize that deterrence saves lives. That is the, the expenditure to protect you and your own and, and let people know they shouldn't do things. I think... There was a great scholar in Australia, Blaney was his name. I met him once, and he said all of war is really based on ignorance, that everybody in this room, if everybody knew how strong each person was physically, they wouldn't say certain things to certain people, or they wouldn't try things. But what happens among nations, the strong nations sometimes don't advertise how strong they are. They give the wrong signal to a Hitler or a Tojo or a Mussolini, and then they do stupid things. And war then is a learning experience. It teaches, it's what Thucydides said, it's a harsh taskmaster, harsh schoolmaster. What it means is that you have to find out something that you should have known from the beginning. So at the end of World War II, 65 million people are dead. September 2nd, 1945, guess what we learned? The Soviet Union and the United States and the British Empire really did have a lot more wherewithal than Germany, fascist Italy, and Tojo. And the U.S. economy was larger than all six belligerents, all five other belligerents put together. We should have known that in the beginning. We wouldn't have had to go to war. But we didn't. We were isolationist British. You could argue that there were people in the British government that appeased, and then there were people in the Soviet government that collaborated. And that sent the wrong message that uh, these people were weak when they were not. They were very inherently strong. It occurs to me that war is like farming. <laughs> You uh, learn a lot about the constraints of nature from both. And and our way, we Americans, we've been so radically successful, more than any nation ever. I mean, I know that the claim today is that we're the most horrible nation on earth, but that's foolish. 
it's not always good for us to be so successful. Sometimes we have, when we enter that period of hubris, we always get hit with nemesis. And that happened, for example, in Afghanistan. And I always envisioned it. I, I was embedded twice in Iraq, and I went over there. And when you see, when you say the Iraq war, but when you see the entire logistical problem of bringing a whole army all the way 6,000 miles. And then you see these kids, 1920, and they're out in 110 weather and they're underneath a Humvee trying to fix it. Or they're walking, you're walking with them and somebody, they'll say, watch out for the person over there. He looks like a little kid. He may be as, that is what it's all about. It's not just a neat, clean thing. And I think sometimes we think we're going to go to Afghanistan. We're going to go do this. We're going to do this. And because we do things so well, it's going to be automatic. And war is so unpredictable. And we haven't had a very good, to be frank, if you look at Vietnam and then maybe maybe not the first Gulf War, but Iraq and Afghanistan and the bombing in Libya, things didn't work out the way we thought they were going to. And I think people in the future should realize that when you decide to do something like that, be aware of the logistics and the toll it's going to take on the society and if you can unite people behind it because so many things go wrong. I, I can't get over that picture that we're leaving Kabul in August of 21 and people are hanging on the plane and the Marines are being blown up and then somebody says, we have a billion-dollar embassy. Well, and then another, and you hear another report, we have $300 million invested in refitting Bagram. And then you see these acres and acres of equipment. I mean, it was just stunning. Brand new Humvees and rifles and machine guns. And so, and a commentator gets on, this is 20 billion we're leaving. No, it's 40 billion. We still don't know. And then we have, they show pictures of a George Floyd mural or a pride flag on the embassy. Or you hear that we spent over $100 million in gender studies. So we were trying to, in a very imperialistic way, implant our popular culture in a traditional Islamic society. But unlike the British who did it pretty successfully, they had power coupled with meaningful reform that people could see help them. But we were going over there and trying to turn traditional Islamic societies into popular culture in America. And yet they didn't think we were strong enough to do it. So here we are leaving and we're leaving all this behind, and they think we're weak, but at the same time, they think that we're haughty and imperialistic because we have a pride flag, which we think is great, but they think is contrary to their entire religion. So we combined the worst of both criticisms of imperialistic, trying to put our views on a different people and then being weak and ambivalent as, as we carried it out. I used to help write the church biography, and I worked for a man named Martin Gilbert, a very, very great man. And I, I got to go to Israel a lot and uh, spent a long time there. I was just there this summer, but I wish I could go and spend a year. Anyway, I, I met, because he was a famous man, I met several of the founders of modern Israel. And I remember when it dawned on me, they were all soldiers. Yeah. And, and they didn't begin as generals. They began in the line. And their whole life, they'd been doing that off and on. And that means the most liberal and the most conservative of them all had a sense of the reality of things. They do. What's interesting about Israel is that it's sort of the litmus test of Western civilization because it's a a purely Western society. It's got a free market economy, especially under the Netanyahu government the last 10 or 12 years. They have a constitutional system. They're Western. They're free. They're affluent as they've never been before as you know. And so do they have the Western disease, the postmodern disease, the laxity that we complain about, or radical veers in fashion or music or all of these things that we do that can be termed excess? But they have, unlike us, they have no margin of error. So can a Western affluent free society and their neighborhood still believe in military readiness, patriotism, full mobilization against people that they're told constantly they oppress them, they shouldn't be there, they're neo. So they've got all this Western baggage that other societies in Europe, the United States, deal with. But 
we we have two oceans. We have Canada and Mexico. Europe is pretty much safe. They have people who want to destroy them and say they want to destroy them and call them a one-bomb state. And they have a history of the Holocaust. And so they have no margin of error. And so it's kind of a, a very interesting country, if I could use that euphemistic terms, is can a Western society, a postmodern 21st Western century society survive when people want to destroy it? Do they, can they still have the wherewithal or the desire to be constantly ready in the way that Europe was finally in 1939 or we were in World War II? And uh, so far, they've been able to do it. It's very fascinating to watch. I'm tempted to do a thesis. We're being ruled by people who haven't farmed, haven't fought, and haven't read any old books. <laughs> that may be our problem. Yeah. It's, um, and one of the things that we didn't talk about, I think also there's a shame culture that we've forgotten. And we, a lot of great classicists talked about that transition from shame of the early Greek city-state to guilt, especially in the Christian era. But we feel guilty about things, but we don't feel any shame. And it's, it's interesting to see that in past civilization, shame was the modulator of behavior. And I was just thinking that the other day when in my hometown, it was a, a farming community, when somebody broke into a store, they always said, Jack Smith, age 16, even though he was a juvenile, son of Mr. and Mrs. John Smith at 21 Birch Avenue was caught in the liquor store today, and he will be charged with grant. And today we would think that was so primitive or so cruel or so mean to identify a juvenile by name or his parents. But that society, as recent as, say, 1970, felt that that was one of the ways that society had to encourage good behavior. And I can remember when... Uh, a person in my family was smoking in town, and my grandfather came back and said, can you sit down? Mr. Jones, another farmer, said his wife was in town, and he saw your blank relative, and he had a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Is that true? <laughs> I said, it's not like it's illegal. And I said, my dad smoked in World War II, and he said, I know that, but this is not a war zone, and our family does not smoke in public. It wasn't a religious element at all. It was just... We have a reputation, we've been here forever, and we don't want people impugning it by suggesting. And there was another relative that had a tiny little tattoo. And he said, what's his name came back from the war? He's my nephew, but he, I thought he was gonna say he was wounded, or he was killed, or he was studying from post-traumatic, he said, and he was tattooed. And that was something. And we, in our wisdom, said, we're gonna get beyond that small scarlet letter society so we just abandon that whole collective pressure on individual behavior. And I think, as I always say to my wife, if I lost my wallet in my hometown in a primitive area of era 1965, somebody would deliver it to my house. When I lost it here, my credit card is being used, and I find out within 30 minutes that somebody stole it. And yet we're supposedly morally superior, and we've advanced far beyond the prejudice and biases and parochialism of 1965 when people return people's wallets to each other. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you, to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? 
Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Uh, you're famous for thinking that we're in a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to. My wife also calls me Eeyore. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, you can tell from the structure of this interview that uh, we don't need to draw that out. I, my, I myself think, I think we're in a terrible mess and famous for thinking that too. But it's good to think about the perspective, the background that can help us understand the mess and maybe make a plan, a plan to get out of it. Do you have suggestions for us about that? Well, th- there's two ways you could approach that remedy. One is politics and one is culture or spirit. Politics, I think we're $32 trillion in debt and we have no way of paying it back and we're running a $2 trillion deficit. And the mentality behind that is, I guess it's modern monetary theory. So there's always going to be a postmodern theory to justify some disastrous action, but we're headed toward a rendezvous with radical financial correction of somehow, whether it's Social Security or Medicare or the budget. And there's other things that used to be our forte. The military is, I think, is in deep trouble. They're having problems recruiting. They're they're becoming ideological. All the things we grew up with as traditionalists that we counted on, the DOJ, the FBI, the CIA, they seem unrecognizable. So there are things that have to be addressed. And one of the things I think we've got to do is go back to smaller government, less regulation. But to do that, you just can't say that. That means, okay, Victor, how do you do it? Well, you have to elect the House and the Senate and the White House, and then you have to be on the same page. That's very difficult to do. We, it's very rare when a party can do that. But that ha- that's what the only solution unless you believe that you can do it spiritually or culturally or socially by changing the hearts and minds of people. And there's two things that give me hope. One's negative. One is it can't get worse. We're getting to what Herb Stein said, as I said the other night. If it can't go on, it won't go on. When you go down, when you walk through downtown San Francisco and you tiptoe through human feces and you see people who are injecting and fornicating and urinating and assaulting people with impunity, and you see cars that have placards, nothing inside, car unlocked, don't take anything, then you see that in 30% of these beautiful buildings are empty, that it looks like a, a neutron bomb hit it. And so that can't function much longer. And there are people in San Francisco that defunded the police that said we shouldn't do that. And there's people that said the homeless is out of control. And there's people saying, we've got to stop, smash, and grab. And unlike you or I, these are very strong members of the left. And they say our philosophy did not work. So that it's too bad we had to get to this point. But you're starting to see people recognize that when they got their way and they got control of our institutions, the corporate boardroom, K-12, through the universities, professional sports entertainment, the media, and they got everything they wanted, it doesn't work. And then the other thing is that I think a lot of people have memories, kind of like Romans in the third or fourth century AD. We have memories, collective memories of that things were starting to be better in the past. And we're starting, there's all these different movements where people are trying to recapture the Lions Club or the Elks Club, or they're moving out into communities in the foothills, or sometimes it's a monastery of the mind. They just say, I'm not watching the... I was interested in this. I'm not watching the Tonys. I'm not watching the Oscars. I'm not watching the Emmys. I'm not watching the NBA anymore. I'm not watching the halftime show. I'm not... And when you look at the statistics, it's radical. It just dropped off. So non-participation in popular culture is starting to really make an effect. A lot of people say, I know I should be doing this. I know I should watch this stuff. I don't go to movies anymore. Part of it's technology. I can watch them at home. But I don't want to participate in the popular culture because it's a road to oblivion. And I think half the country is there already. And they're starting, you know, Hillsdale College, when you came here, I mean, it was still a very successful college, but you've seen in 20 years miraculous growth. But more importantly, 
Hillsdale is not a college just anymore. It's sort of a, I don't want to say a brand name, but it, it's a beacon to say that the world doesn't have to be the way it is. You can, you can replicate our values both with other colleges, but culturally, socially, economically. And that, that's hopeful. Well, we, we live, you're present here on the campus, which is an honor to us now going for back, I think, more than 20 years. It's a vindication of the most important thing that I learned in the classics myself, and that is everybody loves the good, and they love the beautiful the most of all. And so one thing I think, I was asked myself the other day, what do we do about this mess? And the answer is everything we can. But the other thing is that spiritual thing you talked about. It's very difficult to restore that against the resistance of the law. It is. And yet, it's also very difficult to fix the law without that. It means that the people who think the culture come first and the people, uh, they're a little bit too optimistic because Aristotle says the law makes culture. Well, we're in a, we have to have a great movement and it has to start with people learning. I'm going to give you a chance to say something else, but we'll close this now. I just want to say in compliment to you, the most important thing you are to the world, the most important thing you are to your friends and yourself is you're a great knower of the best things. The most important thing you are to others is a teacher. And that's the way to help cultivate the spiritual re renewal that is necessary. Thank you. I, I think a lot of us don't want to argue anymore and everybody misinterprets it that as you're checking out or giving up. But what's happened is whether people are moving to different states or they're saying, I'm not going to buy anything from this particular corporation anymore, or I'm not going to watch this particular national event. It's almost like a mass civil disobedience. And a lot of people are saying, if they're not going to participate, we need those people, even though we manipulate them and we don't like them. We need them as consumers. We need them as viewers. We need them as attendants. And these people are saying, we're not going to do it. We don't want to have a fight with you. We're just not going to do it because your values have led us purgatory, basically. And I think that is becoming a very powerful movement, and people are starting to recognize it. And people on the left even are saying, wow, you can't have this mass resistance without understanding why, what it's about and why people are doing that. And so it's been one of the strangest things in my life to see Bill Maher or Matt Taibbi or Elon Musk or people like that finally saying, this doesn't work. Yeah. what I what I'm doing and so, it doesn't work because a lot of people are are not participating in it your latest book is great it's called the dying citizen and uh it's a moan about the loss of citizenship and a call to restore it and maybe what we're saying is the path to restoring citizenship an urgent need is that we all start learning and thinking again I think so and nothing's more important I think as I get older than civic education yeah. Teaching people about the customs and traditions of their country. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank Dr. you Hanson. for having me, Larry.